This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. What's good, y'all? You are listening to Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. And we are entering the second autumn of this global COVID pandemic, which is a wild thing to consider. Schools are opening up again. Kids and college students are returning to their classes. Movie theaters are screening. Restaurants are up and running. Or at least the ones that survived lockdown are. And a lot of establishments have signs posted that say people who are fully vaccinated don't have to wear masks when they enter. Of course, a lot of those places ain't checking for whether people are fully vaccinated. And so it's not really clear how we're supposed to be in relation to each other when we're in public. Like, what are the rules for being outside right now? And who is in charge of making sure people follow those rules? Like, maybe sometime over the last almost two years, you were in a place where everybody was unmasked, except for you. But you didn't feel comfortable taking your mask off. I've definitely been that dude at the gym. Or you've seen people throwing tantrums about being asked to wear a mask in public spaces. Maybe you're one of those people. That would be unfortunate if you were. Don't don't be that person. The thing is, y'all, even before this new normal we're all trying to adjust to and figure out, being in public was always contentious. Because public space and how we show up in it is always, on some level, political. Are you a trans person who wants to use the bathroom? Depending on where you live... That might result in the cops getting called. Are you a black kid who sagged their pants? You might have to talk to a police officer in one of the many jurisdictions that have passed laws against your sartorial choices. Are you a Latino person in the Southwest? Maybe some sheriff's deputies pull you over and ask you to prove you're a citizen. You see where I'm going with this. Over the last few years, though, you've seen the popularization of this name for a certain kind of person who takes it upon themselves or herself as a concerned citizen or just a nosy AF citizen to do that policing of public spaces. Yes, I'm talking about the Karen. And when people say Karen, they mean a white woman who frames herself as a victim as she invokes some institutional authority. You know, she wants to speak to the manager or maybe even the cops. Get out now! There's three numbers I can dial. 911. You're calling police on an eight-year-old little girl. You... Yeah, and um, illegally selling water without a permit yeah. on um, my property. Yeah, I'd like to report that someone is illegally using a charcoal grill. Um, I need a description of them. What race are they? Um, African-American. And how old approximately? Y'all remember Amy Cooper? This seems like so long ago. She was the woman in New York Central Park who called the police on a black man who asked her to put her dog on a leash... There is an African-American man. I am in Central Park. He is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. And my... I'm sorry, I can't hear you either. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. She became kind of like the or Karen. And as y'all know, we live in a world in which contact between the police and black folks and other people of color often goes sideways. All these calls to the cops carry really serious weight to them. What makes Karening distinct, though, from, like, other genres of calling the cops on black folks in public 
is that it's specifically about white womanhood. The white women we're talking about are positioning themselves as the victims of some sort of offense, and they are in need of institutional protection. And in this country's history, defending white women's virtue was often central to the rhetoric and the logic of defending the racial status quo. So yeah, Karen might be relatively new nomenclature, but Karen-ing has been with us for a long time. Last year, my former co-host, Shereen Marisol Miraji, dear, she and I spoke to our own Karen, Karen Grigsby Bates, who was one of the correspondents on Code Switch, and KGB interviewed a researcher who has deep knowledge of the Karen and her forebears. My name is Meredith Clark. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. Meredith says Karen is part of a continuum, that before there were Karens and Beckys, there was Miss Anne. But all of those names go back to, um, as far as I can tell, uh, Jim Crow era times and even earlier, right? But specifically in Jim Crow, Black folks were not permitted to respond or to talk to white men and white women by their first names. They had to give them an honorific and the same privilege was not afforded to black men and black women. Um, And so you would often hear about black folks talking about white folks with this honorific and referring to the things that they experienced with them. Like I remember my mother whose mother was a domestic talking about Miss Anne and Mr. Charlie, so a white man and a white woman, Um, and using those to refer to these people without directly referring to them, kind of engaging in that signifying process that we think about when Black folks are talking about one thing but saying another. Miss Anne was a kind of cheeky, in-group shorthand amongst Black people. You might say something like, oh, you do not want to cross Miss Anne today. She is in a mood. Yeah, it's like when you call any annoying white guy, Chad. (laughs) There you go. Meredith says the exact names might change over the decades, but there's a consistent line that runs from Miss Anne to Becky to Karen. The thing that makes Miss Anne Miss Anne is that she recognizes her privilege and she uses it um, almost as a cudgel or weapon to keep certain folks in their place, to keep Black people in particular in their quote-unquote place. And as we even saw with someone like Amy Cooper, Miss Anne knows what her place is in society today, and she uses it to her advantage. So, I mean, a lot of our listeners are white women. And anytime we talk about white women and the particular ways that they benefit from white supremacy, the ways they engage in white supremacy, we get emails. They point out that white men actually hold the levers of power. And that they've been marginalized. And it is a lot easier to beat up on women, Gene. Mm-hmm. We see that on the podcast a lot. Right. And look, Karens are a menace. But at the risk of sounding like I'm caping for Karens, uh, we also have a lot more practice just being dismissive of opinionated women in public spaces, period. To your point, Shereen. And I'm sure Meredith would agree with both of you. But, she says, people need to remember that racial hierarchies and gender hierarchies are all intersecting in different ways. So 
in a household, a white woman might be, you know, second, maybe third, depending on uh, what her family owned and what sort of property they had. So second or third in charge in her household. And one of the ways to reinforce that hierarchy was to remind people constantly and consistently exactly where she was and what her privilege was. And a crucial part of upholding those systems is that when things aren't working the way she thinks they ought, Miss Anne will call on a man to try to carry out her will, whether it's a husband, a brother, a security guard, even a police officer. So even if Miss Anne doesn't have all the power, she definitely has the ear of the people who do, people who have a lot of practice in protecting white womanhood, oftentimes with deadly violence. Right, like... Think of Emmett Till or Claude Neal, who, Shireen, you reported on, both of whom Mm -hmm. uh, were lynched because of alleged transgressions against white women, or the Central Park Five case, which ignited anger all across the country. Safeguarding the virtue of white women has always been a central plank of white supremacy in the U.S. Exactly. And while a lot of the basic characteristics of Miss Anne's and Becky's and Karen's are the same, Meredith says some of the power dynamics have started to change, in large part because of how social media amplifies Black conversations. Twitter, Facebook, and so on allowed Karen, like so much other Black parlance, to spread quickly into the wider world. Welcome to Black Jeopardy, the only Jeopardy where our prize money is paid in installments. (laughs) You remember that Saturday Night Live skit called Black Jeopardy, right? Yes, it's one of the few funny things on SNL, in my humble opinion. Um, The Tom Hanks one, specifically. Yeah, the Tom Hanks one was very good. Very good, like. Uh, encapsulation of recent class dynamics. Yeah, we're not talking about that one, though. This is the second Black Jeopardy skit. So in it, Chadwick Boseman was playing his Black Panther character, T'Challa. Oh, this is so exciting. All the way from Wakanda, it's T'Challa! I am a big fan of this program. And T'Challa is getting all his answers wrong in Jeopardy because the game is based on Black American idioms, which he doesn't get at all because, duh, he's from Wakanda. But at the last minute, he's asked about someone named Karen bringing her potato salad to his cookout. Before I answer, a few questions. This woman, Karen, she is Caucasian, eh? Yes. Something tells me that I should say, say it. it is only with a tiny bit of salt. That's exactly right. Yeah. And no paprika. No paprika, no. And she will probably add something unnecessary like raisins. I know, right? So, something tells me that I should say, say it. Oh, hell no, nah, Karen. Keep your brand ass potato salad to yourself. Look, maybe it's because I'm Iranian and Puerto Rican and both sides of me puts raisins and currants and things. Raisins and potato salad doesn't actually sound that bad. Don't (laughs) at me. I'm just saying. Or send her your recipes with uh, raisins and whatever. But anyway, Meredith says this moment and a few others like it is when the nation kind of got it, too. And I think that's one of those moments that you had crossover from, you know, this is an internal joke among Black people to, wow, this is something that can be consumed by pop culture. So after that skit and a few other social media incidents, everybody knew what a Karen was. The point of Miss Anne was for Black people to have a way of talking about white women without their knowledge. But the point of Karen is that you can publicly call those women out for their behavior. 
so Karen Becky can call the cops. Um, and so giving a name to that phenomenon gives people, black people in particular, some of the power back. At least to ensure that there are some social consequences, mm-hmm. you know, that may or may not turn into legal ones. We know it did in the case of Amy Cooper. Which brings us to Karen as a slur. You may have seen that some British feminists want Karen erased because they say it's a sexist and classist slur. Sure, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Meredith's kind of like Eugene. She is not having any of that. To me, it just points to another unfortunate characteristic of Karen, and that is that she is only able to see the world from her worldview. She doesn't think for a moment about what this might mean to another person. And that right there is classic Karen behavior. It is. But Shireen, Meredith says there's still hope. She says instead of white women getting defensive about being called Karens, they could try to honestly examine their motives for their behavior. And if they find themselves tempted to do something Karenish, like calling the police on a little girl who's selling bottled water on a hot day, they should ask themselves... What is it that you are trying to accomplish? Uh, Is that something that can be accomplished by you simply walking away from the situation? Is it something that can be accomplished by you reconsidering what's actually happening and maybe seeing it from someone else's perspective? Is it something that can be accomplished by you simply minding your business? Imagine that. When we come back, a look at what the next evolutionary step of the Karen might be. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me. And I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.
Jean. Shireen. Karen. Code switch. So KGB, recently you talked with Kylie Reed, who is from Philly, whose first novel, Such a Fun Age, just got a lot of love from critics and from readers everywhere. It did. It's a really smart book, Gene, and it has a lot of racial politics in it, including multiple characters who might be described as Karens. Some of them are classic Karens, and some are more next-gen Karens. Karens you wouldn't necessarily peg as Karens at first glance. Karen, you and I talked about Such a Fun Age on an earlier Code Switch episode, so everybody go check that out after you're done with this one. But in the meantime, can you give us a quick recap of what Such a Fun Age is about? Well, it's about a young black woman named Amira Tucker. She's 25. She doesn't really know what she wants to do with her life yet. And, you know, it's kind of cooking the same crockpot meal four times a week. And she does know that she is very good at babysitting. So she's out with her girlfriends. They're having a great time. And her employer, Alex Chamberlain, calls her and says, please come and babysit for us. We've had a family emergency. Can you take our child to the grocery store? I will pay you double. Amira is a bit broke, so she says, absolutely. And she heads on over. She grabs Briar, who's three years old. They go to a grocery store. They're having a fun time. They're dancing in the aisles and they're looking at the nuts until a woman and a security guard, upon seeing a black woman with a white child, accuse her of kidnapping. It's a familiar scene in that way where someone pulls out their cell phone. She is humiliated and there is a lot of urging from the security guard and white woman that they are just here for safety. They just want to make sure everything's okay, but they are not trusting this black woman at all that she's just doing her job. Hmm. So a white woman at a fancy grocery store is doing this version of if you see something, say something. She sees a black woman with a white child and assumes she's being kidnapped. Yep, that sounds like your run-of-the-mill Karen. Retail is probably like the natural habitat of the run-of-the-mill Karen, the Karenist domesticus. <laughs> yep, but she's not the only one. Amira is surrounded by people who think they know who Amira is and what's best for her, like her employer, Alex. Kylie said Alex is a type of Karen that might be harder to pin down than your supermarket Karens because... Alex has a lot of power. And she has a lot of manners and she has a lot of composure in the way that she wields her, her racism. And I think that she is a very familiar figure to a lot of black women between coworkers or, or someone you do a carpool with who has all of the best intentions yet is shaping the world around her to what she thinks is best. Oh, I know her. That Karen works at and or listens to... NPR. Mm-hmm. She got the tote bag. She got the T-shirt. Yep. The matching water bottle, too. I think that's where it gets a bit insidious because I do truly think that Alex wants to be this girl's friend. I think that those emotions of truly loving someone and almost having a crush on someone can live very harmoniously with not seeing them as a real human with real desires and, and conflicting emotions. And I almost think it's scarier that we can have all of those emotions together of truly loving someone and also being able to do such harm by not treating them like a human. The kind of person Alex is might be harder for us to recognize as a Karen, because as you said, she does have a certain polish um, and presents herself in a way that would indicate that she's not Karen, yet she is. And I can't help but think that that is a closer picture of what the quote-unquote Karen is rather than just a woman who's upset and having a fit and calling a manager. 
It is someone who is an active part of a broken system. And even though they're not doing the violence, they are very much in charge of where it happens and and how it happens. And there are others in the book. Not all of them are women and not all of them are white. One is Alex's best friend who turns out to be a sort of wealthy black Karen. Another is the man she winds up dating after this dust-up, who happens to be the person who was filming the incident in the grocery store, even though Amira has told him she doesn't want to be filmed. He's white. And if you read the book, you notice that he also has a lot of Karen-like tendencies, like deciding to film Amira because you might want it later. He's making choices for her, despite the fact that she's chosen something else for herself. Which brings us to one of Kylie's most important points, which is that the trend of Karen videos is complicated and can be distracting. I'm conflicted because I think it's a great thing that this type of racism can be caught and called out. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think the way that people respond to these videos can present a few problems. Uh, The first thing is that these videos... It's this cartoon capturable racism. It's dramatic. It's someone saying the N-word. And it's very easy to say, I would never do that. That's not me. When it's impossible to record some of the more impactful forms of racism, like a doctor not believing a Black woman when she says she's in pain or rejecting a housing application because of someone's last name, you can't record that. And those forms are often harder to address and also can have really catastrophic effects. And I think the second problem with it is it makes racism seem like this individual choice. And I think for every Karen threatening someone's life, there's so many more Black people receiving low quality to no health care. And so as much as Karens are truly problematic, I do worry that the satisfaction that comes from canceling a Karen is a distraction from a bigger problem that can be with an Alex or Kelly. In other words, the people who seem woke, who say the right things, but who are still deeply invested in the structures of racism. Kylie says that might be the next face of Karen. This book, I can't believe I haven't read this book yet, especially after the last time we talked about it. No more excuses. It's a really good book. And I think you'll like it, Shireen. And I think, Jean, you will too, if only because it's set in Philadelphia and you probably know all the landmarks, but you also know the racial politics of all of this stuff. And I have a question for you both. We've been talking Karens for a bit now. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, on a personal level, who springs to mind, real or fictional, when I say Karen? Do you guys have any favorite Karens? Present company excluded. I have one. Okay. The Karen you love to hate. I guess that's all Karens. Except for you, Karen. Thank you. Who's your Karen? So for me, it's Dolores Umbridge from the Ministry of Magic in Harry Potter. Study hard and you will be rewarded. Fail to do so and the consequences may be severe. I believe she is the ultimate Karen. Some people might just say that that's like J.K. Rowling. Ooh, zing. (laughs) Snap. For me... It's Reese Witherspoon playing opposite Kerry Washington in the Hulu series Little Fires Everywhere. Uh, Reese's character, Elena, I think is very Karen. She's a tightly wound suburban mom. She's controlling, very aware of the social hierarchies around her. 
She has a blazing argument at one point with Kerry Washington's character, Mia, when Elena tells Mia she is not a good mother, she didn't make good choices for her child, and Mia goes off. You didn't make good choices. You had good choices. Options that being rich and white and entitled gave you. Again, that's the difference between you and me. I would never make this about race. (laughs) Oh, how many times have we heard that? That's Karen right there in a quote. You could like pick any Reese Witherspoon character from like the last five years and she's like nailing. (laughs) She's nailing the Karen. (laughs) If you watch Big Little Lies, her character on Big Little Lies is like the apotheosis of Karendom. Anyway, thank you, Reese Witherspoon, for your uh, magnificent portrayal of the Karen in the wild. All right, y'all, that's our show. This episode originally aired on the podcast back in 2020. You can follow Code Switch on Twitter and IG. We're at NPR Code Switch on both those platforms. I'm at GEEDE215 on both those platforms. You can subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. This episode was produced by Alyssa Jong Perry and Leah Danella. It was edited by Leah and it was reported by Karen Grigsby Bates, who you just heard. And we will be remiss if we did not shout out the rest of the Code Switch Massive. Kumar Devarajan, Jess Kung, Christina Kala, Summer Tamad, Sam Yellowhorse Kessler, and Steve Drummond. Our art director is L.A. Johnson. I'm Gene Demby. Bezio. A special thanks to our funder, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, for helping to support this podcast. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club. NPR Wine Club members have contributed over $1.5 million to helping create a more informed public. B21. Join the charge at nprwineclub.org slash podcast. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com slash thematic investing. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.